Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about human healing, restorative practices for real people and a better world. My first guest is Dr. Elena Mostakova. She is an educator, counselor, writer, social scientist, and former professor in adult developmental psychology. She is the author of Critical Consciousness and senior editor of Toward a Socially Responsible Psychology for Global Era. Dr. Mostakova has received academic recognition for her scholarship, writing, and international lecturing on the development of moral consciousness and the rethinking of psychology to address the spiritual needs of a global age. Her dedication is to the spiritual empowerment of individuals and communities towards a just, united, and peaceful planet. And she's also the author of her newest book, Global Unitive Healing. Elena, thanks for joining me on the show today. Thank you so much, Lisa. It's a pleasure to be with you. Oh, I feel the same way. This subject has been the topic of many discussions in my household, because while we see the effects of what's gone on in the world in these past couple of years, in these times of uncertainty in the pandemic, political strife, geopolitical problems uh, around the world, the state of civility has eroded, right? It's like we've We've got another kind of, of epidemic going on, another influenza. Yes, it's very true. It is layers and layers of suffering right now, and some of them are spoken of and others are not. And that's what makes it particularly hard, because in many ways, people do not even know why it is so hard to be living in these times. What are we facing as I sometimes say, we don't even understand what is living us. Something is living us in a way that is not harmonious, it is not grounding, and we don't know what it is. Well, do you think that many of us are driven by fear today, that it, it is the fear of the unknown, the fear of someone or something is going to take from us? I would agree with that. And I would say that what drives that fear is a very limited and at this point fundamentally untrue narrative about who we are and what life is. The narrative that is pervasive in our media, in our way of life, in our subconscious assumptions is that we are these separate, independent individuals who can uh, compete if they learn to compete well can actually establish a pretty good life for themselves and their families. And it's all about more knowledge, more know-how, et cetera, et cetera. So all of these 
aspects of reality are real, but they're not the whole story. And when they are presented as the whole story, we end up with a very skewed understanding of life and of ourselves, which is unsatisfying. It produces a lot of anxiety and all forms of mental suffering. And what's even worse, it is not sustainable anymore in the world. We're having to move out of it so rapidly, and yet we don't know what else is there. You know, I think what you said about, you know, almost like the state of competition, right? Like he or she who has the most toys or achievements wins, but there is a certain losing in that process as well, which if if you have all of these things or these symbols of, of society's interpretation of success, and then you get there and you realize that you're really empty hearted. Very true. And, you know, again, coming back to, to the narrative of what life is, what we are very quickly discovering, and we discovered it painfully still are during the pandemic, is that we are fundamentally interdependent yes. on this small planet. And that the only way the planet really works well is when we all work together in a compassionate, understanding, and principled way. And of course, you start to think about compassionate, understanding, and principled way, and you realize very quickly what's missing in our societies. There is corruption. There is extreme individualism. Principles are bent in every direction. And we still don't really act as though we understand our interdependence with all life on this planet. And so that creates an emptiness of heart, as you mentioned, just a chronic sadness and unhappiness that people are trying to fill up in all kinds of ways and lots of anxiety. And filling up in all kinds of ways. I want to touch upon that for a moment, because when you think of some of the political drama that we're witnessing, not just in the United States, but around the world, people who are seeking, right, we're all seeking community and connection. And I think that sometimes these militant groups or any any group really is a host, right, for community. And people are trying to find their way to something. And I think I think maybe you know what I'm trying to get at. Maybe I'm not being yeah. so articulate in what I'm saying. <laughs> it's like we we put our energy somewhere, and in some cases, it's it's in a in, in a malicious way. It's so true. We put our energy somewhere because we all feel the need for community. Yeah. And so I I see what you're pointing to is that sometimes we can be so deluded uh, by by speech by promises that don't really match reality. At the same time, though, we live in an information age and we have access to a lot of opportunities to understand what different groups stand for, how their behavior in the world really proves or disproves their claims. And also to notice, we have the ability to notice what language is being used. Is the language of promises also a language that is aggressive, that is uh, making somebody else the enemy, that is making somebody else the foreigner, the alien, the one out. If this language is aggressive, how can it possibly address the needs of the soul or address the needs of the planet? How much aggression can this small planet sustain? Yeah. So clearly, we have 
both exposure to all kinds of promises, but also at this time, the ability to discern languages that elevate the soul and the spirit, that ennoble us, that connect us, that open up horizons of potential collaboration, constructive collaboration, languages that foster constructive resilience, and then also languages that breed fear, distrust, and separateness. So each of us has the opportunity to use our discernment and to really ask ourselves, what am I supporting? What am I living? Part of the social epidemic is the lack of critical thinking, right? Like, that's where I go to, like, wh what has happened to critical thinking here? <laughs> Hello, where, it, where is it? And how do we retrieve it and teach it? It's true that there is quite a remarkable lack of, of discernment that has been cultivated in a consumer society. You're just not going to be a very good consumer if you are encouraged to be truly discerning, when the message constantly is you're incomplete, but if you buy this and if you consume this and if you enroll in this workshop and if you do this, then maybe you'll become a little more complete or more adequate. So the message always is get more, try more, and then maybe you'll measure up. So consumerist society, and this is something that since the first half of the 20th century, critical theorists were writing and speaking about that this is the shadow side of the consumer societies that were being born throughout the West at that time, that people are becoming, are trained to be less discerning, to feel more inadequate, and to raise to consume. So what we are trying to reclaim now is the recognition that it isn't about consumption. It is about connecting and ensuring a life that is sustainable for our grandchildren, which is now a big question on this planet. Yes. And that this planet cannot sustain inordinate consumption. It needs remarkable new level of cooperation and coordination so that we can forestall the climate crisis, the, cri the climate emergency that we're living in, and we can really balance out our lives between all the facets of who we are. And I will just say, where and when do we get told that we are a mind, body, soul, and spirit in a socio-historical context? And that unless we live in a way that is balanced and harmonious among these different aspects of our being, we cannot be happy. We cannot just address the mind. We cannot just address the body. We cannot just become all about spirit to the point where we become fanatical and disregard physical and social realities. And we also cannot disregard the historical time that we're living. This is a planet that's trying to come together in order to remain sustainable. That is the historical time. Every one of us is a player in this. I love that you just said that. Well, let's pause there. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation to learn more about the work of Dr. Elena Mustakova. Please visit her website, elenamustakova.net. You can also find her at globalsocialhealth.org on Facebook. She is at Global Social Health and on Instagram at Global Social Health. The book we're talking about today is Global Unitive Healing. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. 
Before we pause, let me share with you one of the ways I harvest happiness with today's proud sponsor, Daily Harvest. Daily Harvest saves me precious time and feeds my family fresh, natural, big nutrition by delivering convenience without compromise to my doorstep. At the end of a long recording day, the last thing I want to do is shop, chop, prep, and cook. Thanks to Daily Harvest, my freezer is fully stocked with delicious harvest bowls, soups, flatbreads, snacks, smoothies, lattes, and more, all powered by organic fruits and vegetables. I'm wild about the pear and arugula flatbread and cinnamon and cocoa chili spice churro oat milk ice cream. Daily Fresh is like my invisible sous chef who stocks the kitchen with all the yummy, clean, sane, and healthy foods I would prepare if I was doing the cooking. It makes me happy to know that I have mouth-watering food choices for breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, and dessert at any time. That's practically instant healthy gratification. With Daily Harvest, I never have to question the quality or source of my food. I know they've created food that's good for my health and the health of our planet. Daily Harvest supports farmers who invest in practices that increase biodiversity, improve soil health, and deliver food in recyclable and compostable packaging. Daily Harvest does all the work, so all you have to do is eat and enjoy. New to the scene is their delicious harvest bakes for those moments you need homemade feels without any of the effort. Enjoy ready-to-bake veg pack dishes sizzling with gourmet-level flavors. Join Daily Harvest for a daily dose of edible goodness delivered to your door and ready in minutes. Avoid the takeout temptation and get Daily Harvest. Go to dailyharvest.com slash harvesting to get up to $40 off your first box. That's dailyharvest.com slash harvesting for up to $40 off your first box. dailyharvest.com slash harvesting. Now let's take that pause. We'll be right back. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit harvestinghappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. And we're back, continuing the conversation with Dr. Elena Mostakova. We're talking about human healing, restorative practices for real people and a better world. Let's get back to it. Elena, prior to the break, we were talking about what ails us. We were talking about where we must evolve to in order to sustain ourselves and the planet. And I would love to give our listeners some insight and some tools that they could share with people in their orbit of ways to practice what you are sharing here today. Great. Thank you. Well, actually, my book is written precisely with that in mind. After every chapter, there is an appendix of reflection question and exercises suggested so that as people journey, it is not just stories and lives and some social science that explains all of what is happening, but then it is followed by practices. But for the purpose of our listeners, I will say that there are four categories of skills that we can easily begin to develop. Uh, within our lives because they will optimize our lives in general. Those are intrapersonal skills. And among those, probably the most important one is creating quiet time to truly listen to our soul and our spirit. And with that, uh, the most obvious 
thing to do is to dedicate the first 15 to 30 minutes in the morning to quiet reflection, meditation, prayer time, in whichever way it feels right within your background, within your tradition, your resources. There are a lot of ways that it can be done. There's some suggested in the book, but a time where you begin to commune with your soul and your spirit. And I will tell you that sometimes when I encourage my clients to move in that direction, at first they say, I don't even know where to begin because we've had so little exposure to this kind of language. But you'll find quite a bit of that in the book. So that's one thing, really not starting the day with TV, with jumping in the shower, with everything that we do that is active, but starting with quiet reflection time before we engage those activities. Meditation, reflection, prayer, fundamental to our self-understanding. And let's remember that in all wisdom traditions, there is a saying, he who hath not known himself had not known God. We have to begin <laughs> by knowing and connecting to our own spirit. So that's the internal work, and there's more in the book, but that's just a snippet. And then there is the interpersonal learning, really understanding what it means to listen to each other deeply in an I-thou spirit. I am listening to the soul within you. I'm looking at the soul in your eyes. I'm trying to really respond and not react. Also, if I am having difficulty understanding where you're coming from, then let's talk more deeply. Let's consult. And I talk a lot about what consultation is in the book, which is a different skill than conversation. Yes. Uh, in any case, <laughs> until we understand each other, we cannot really love each other. Yeah. And every wisdom tradition teaches love. But when you look at the perennial philosophy of Aldous Huxley, he identifies that as a common theme that runs through all wisdom traditions. We love what we know and we know what we love. They go together. So in the interpersonal space, we have to learn to come to understand each other deeply so we can love each other, so we can really hear the validity, the integrity, the spirit in each other. So that's the second group of skills. Yeah. I just want to say one thing about the the loving each other, because I think that is a, that is a topic for a whole other show. Because this concept of love beyond romantic love or love for one's children, this is where I think we need education, you know, to, to, to teach people how to fall back in love with humanity. So very true and so beautifully said. And, you know, when we think about falling in love with humanity, that brings us right to the third and fourth area of skills. The third one being how we understand objective reality. We really need to re-educate ourselves on that. And the fourth one is how we understand society. So our understanding of objective reality has to become re-infused with the spiritual. In the last 100 years, a whole long list of quantum physicists and other scientists have begun to realize that reality is fundamentally spiritual and it expresses in the material realm, which means that there are forces at work at all times that connect us and that falling in love with humanity is also about awakening that spiritual sensibility 
to the spiritual aspects of life. And so that's a whole third category. People can do a lot in that category. Readings are offered in my book, and there's an abundance out there. So we don't have much time. It really is a topic for a separate conversation. And then the fourth area is to really look at our societies and understand the change and transformation that has to happen in our societies that have been governed by group identities until now. And we all in our societies have to grow towards a more world-centric identity that connects us across groups and does not make other groups the enemy. And that is a very mature social understanding that has to emerge so that we can consult across groups. And again, we come back to the skill of consultation, which is discussed at length in the second and third part of my book. And through the skill of consultation, we can evolve collective solutions that work for all. Let's go back to that, the skill of consultation, because this is something that is very much part of native traditions. You know, I'm thinking about, you know, Native American tribes and everything was through consultation. Everything was decided this way. Very much so. Thank you. That is a wonderful connection. And what's the difference between consultation and conversation? Consultation was a spiritual act. The setting was always uh, a circle in uh, uh, indigenous traditions. And the person who spoke would hold a staff, which meant they held in that moment authority and everybody was listening deeply. Then the staff is passed on. The next person speaks with wisdom, groundedness and authority. Everybody listens deeply. And so the circle goes and everybody listens. There's no argument and crossfire. But as everybody listens to each other deeply, the understanding evolves, it deepens, and eventually an organic solution emerges. It does not belong to any one person. It belongs to the whole. It is a fundamentally spiritual process. It's beautiful to witness. Let's talk a little bit about the use of the word spiritual, because oftentimes when I bring up spirituality in the context of this work, people, you know, they, they scrunch their face, you know, oh, I'm not religious. And what we're talking about is not about religion, right? The, the practice and experience of spirituality is something beyond dogma. Certainly. And religion at its best is also not dogma. That's what we've learned to associate religion with. Unfortunately, it has become dogma. Yes. But When scientists speak about the spiritual nature of reality, they speak about consciousness. The consciousness pervades all things, that there is such a thing as universal consciousness that connects us all. We talk about universal mind. There's all kinds of different ways to speak about it. And then spiritual is essentially aligning to the non-material nature of reality, to these forces of, of consciousness and interconnectedness that are at work in the universe. And in fact, every wisdom tradition, and notice I refer to them as wisdom traditions, not as religions, yes. every wisdom tradition has offered profound understanding to humanity about the nature of this spiritual reality and ways in which we can better align ourselves to it. But unfortunately, that understanding has become 
buried under dogmatic and rigid attitudes. And so oftentimes we end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And so reclaiming that understanding now is something that we have the opportunity to do and really freeing it from dogma and rigidity. But uh, spiritual knowledge, spiritual apprehension is another, the other way of knowing reality. So we have rational analytical understanding, and then we also have spiritual apprehension. And wisdom traditions have cultivated the spiritual apprehension, and we may need to reinvest in that a little bit. I'm thinking about when you were speaking about scientists, and I think you said there were a hundred scientists who have have spoken about or written about the connection of spirituality. I what I meant, uh, I'm not sure how it came across, but what I meant is in the last hundred years, the last hundred years. Uh, quantum mechanics uh, and quantum physics have really made vast discoveries about the spiritual nature of reality. And probably the earliest name that comes to my mind is Erwin Schrodinger. But then we've got Max Planck, David Baum. And then we have a long list of thinkers from philosopher Alfred North Whitehead to paleontologists, Teilhard du Chardin, to biologist Julian Huxley, and many more. These are just some of the list of names who all within the last hundred years have come to very similar conclusions. We did an episode recently with uh, Heino Falke, who's a professor of radio astronomy and physics, and an astronaut, an American astronaut. And the topic was of course, the perspective from their own disciplines, you know, as, you know, leaving the planet and going out in outer space and, and, and being somebody who studies black holes in the case of Heino Falke, but also the relationship and connection to these disciplines from a spiritual perspective. And both argued very strongly in the same way that you do for the fact that there must be a spiritual presence in our lives. Yes, you know, I'm so glad you mentioned that because, in fact, uh, people often are not aware that the Institute for the Study of Consciousness, which is the Institute of Noetic Sciences, IONS, was in fact founded by Edgar Mitchell, who yes. was the seventh man, I believe, to walk on the moon. Uh, and he, what he experienced on his return from the moon to our beautiful blue planet is now known as the overview effect. He, This NASA-trained hard scientist had a profound spiritual experience on his return to Earth and founded the Institute uh, of Ions, and he said that it was his hope that Ions would become for the inner horizons what NASA is for the outer horizons. I love this. I really do love this. And we have had people from the Noetic Science Institute on the program as well, because you can't escape this part of it. And I think it's also because people are often skeptical. I think that there is a demand to paraphrase or explain this concept of spirituality in a different way. So someone can embrace it. It's like anybody who has ever been through substance abuse recovery or who has loved somebody who has been through and has gone through AA and they talk about that surrender to a higher power and that being the sticking point for so many people to embark on their recovery journey. 
it's true. But you know, there's a simpler place to start. We can start by listening to our own hearts. Yes. <laughs> and the heart really does know what we're talking about. And I hear scientists left, right and center say this. The heart actually knows. We just don't know how to listen to our hearts. And so that's where I begin with my, in my book, the first chapter is deep listening to our hearts. But uh, I should also mention that the, the chairperson of the IONS wrote the afterword, Claudia Wells wrote the afterword to my book. And, and he had, she had quite a bit to say about the timeliness of, of this exploration, of this journey that I offer. So I hope that your readers will give this book a chance. It was written to help people, truly to help people in these difficult times. I was moved to write when the pandemic began. And I just kept waking up in the middle of the night feeling that I have to write, I have to write. It is very urgent. Now is the moment. People need to understand. People need to know. I agree with you. I mean, and, and for many, this, uh, the pandemic has been a very fertile period, right? For those who are content creators, you know, who like to write and to make things. If you tune into that space, so many of us, I know for myself too, it, it was very productive. I mean, you couldn't go anywhere else, right? You were, you were limited. So you return to the inner resources that have always been there. Indeed. Yes. The inner resources that have always been there that we have to tune into more deeply so that we feel more guided in yeah. what we're doing. Dr. Elena Mustakova, come back and let's talk about love because I think that that's a natural place that we can have some fun <laughs> together. <laughs> Most happily. I will be very happy to be back, Lisa. This has been really a pleasure talking with you and thank you for hosting such a meaningful show. Oh, thank you. The book we're speaking about today is Global Unitive Healing. My guest and the author is Dr. Elena Mustakova. To learn more about Elena and her work, please visit elenamustakova.net or globalsocialhealth.org. On Facebook and Instagram, the handle is Global Social Health. Here comes that break. We'll be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Welcome back. We're continuing the conversation about human healing, restorative practices for real people and a better world. My next guest is Jason Gotts. Gotts is a writer, podcaster, lecturer in the writing department of Columbia University's Graduate School of the Arts and a singer-songwriter. He holds a master's degree in Eastern Classics from St. John's College and another in Developmental Psychology from Columbia University. Jason is the creator and host of Think Again, a Big Think podcast and the Clever Creature podcast. Jason has also given birth to the book, Humanity is Trying, Experiments in Living with Grief, Finding Connection and Resisting Easy Answers. Jason, thanks for joining me today. I'm so happy to be here. So happy to have you here because I think you and I share a lot of things in common in our experiences. <laughs> Okay. Tell me about it. Tell me about it. And how does that make you feel? <laughs> I roll. Let's talk about personal growth and it being such a messy process. All right. 
you know, this is a memoir and I wrote it being a memoir and also, I guess, me being who I am. The only way that I knew how to write it was from the particulars of my own experience, which then I hope, and it is, you know, it was my attempt in writing the book that some of the challenges I've struggled with and in various ways have overcome will strike a more universal note in people reading the book. From everything I know, everything I can see, you know, I mean, in my own life and in in the lives of the people that I know, like you said at the beginning, life is hard. Like we don't want to, I mean, especially I think in America where, you know, we're talking and where I grew up, uh, we don't want to think like that. We don't want to talk about how difficult things are. I think optimism is sort of in the DNA of the of the country. But I, I think that real growth doesn't happen unless or until you acknowledge the challenges that you're facing. Um, and I think that growth is, in fact, the process of acknowledging, metabolizing, mourning, as it were, things that that you've had to struggle with. So in my case, those, you know, the ones that I talk about in the book include the loss of two people that that I was very close to, my my younger sister, my only sibling, Mary in 2015, and my best friend in high school, who was really my sort of first deepest best friend uh, in the world at a time when, you know, at a crucial time of identity formation, when I think I, more than many people, uh, desperately needed that kind of connection. And when we talk about these losses, you know, that we as as humans, we will lose people in the course of our lives and there's never a way to prepare for it, you know, and when the person is young, I think it adds another layer of grief and complexity to what is otherwise a natural part of the human process. That's right. And I mean, I think... I think the lesson there is that, you know, the story that we, the stories that we want to believe in about what sort of what is natural and how things are supposed to go, you know, that life should go through certain stages and we should, you know, hit certain markers and accumulate X, Y, and Z by a certain time. You know, the even these um, lists of um, 30 under 30 that sort of celebrate achieving things early, I think we have a tendency to to really get attached to these these kind of ideas about how things are supposed to go. And I think that when things don't go the way that they're supposed to go, you know, that can either be, I mean, it is a devastating tragedy, of course, but it is also perhaps a reminder that there is a different way to look at the world, that we are, in fact, you know, in a constant process of change, that life is not whatever we would like it to be or what fits nicely into the narrative arc of a made-for-television movie. And that in sort of learning to accept that, we are actually broadening the scope of our lives as opposed to limiting it. We're broadening what's possible and what we can allow to be possible. You spoke about in the West, particularly in America, us being a, an optimistic society. And there is so much emphasis on 
the pursuit of happiness, the desire to be happy, and that if you're not happy, that there's actually something wrong. And I know this is a positive psychology show. However, <laughs> around here, you know, we, we talk about happiness as being kind of an annoying word, right? Because what we're really grasping for, I think, as humans is that state of uh, sustainability of right. our levels of contentment. Yeah, I think it's a little bit like how in ancient Greek, there are all of those different words for love that mean very different things. Yeah. And my ancient Greek is rusty, but you know, <laughs> eros for romantic love. And then uh, is it agape for, you know, it's a different type Fil of love. Uh, yeah, agape, sure filial love. I mean, right. I just right. wrote a piece on this. I should, I should know them, but that was already in February <laughs> and that's gone. <laughs> Yeah. And so, you know, how the same way that the um, Inuits are, you know, allegedly have many names for snow, I guess, you know, philosophizing cultures have many names for, for love. And we ought to have more names than we do for happiness. I wrote a thing recently where I was talking about how so my wife is Turkish and in the Turkish culture, there's this word, huzun, H-U-Z-U-N, which is kind of a defining aspect of Turkish culture. And I think a, a poor translation for it would be melancholy, but actually it's sort of like the happiness of sadness. And so like the ultimate huzun moment would be like you're in Istanbul and you're looking at the, what they call metap, which is the shining of the, the moon, the moon's reflection on the, on the water of the Bosphorus or any water really. And this, feeling that you have of like, you know, the impermanence of things, yourself as kind of a, a pebble in the stream of history, you know, there's a great joy and sadness kind of mixed, mingled together in that. And that's Huzun. And I just think that, I think that happiness has so many shades uh, and we get into trouble. And I think that's what you're saying. You know, we get into trouble when we when we think of it as just sort of like bouncing down the street in glee, I mean, that's really nice, but, um, but life is bigger than that. Life is deeper than that. And our happiness can encompass more than, than just that. Um, and has to, I think. I agree with you. And I, I'm, I'm thinking of sort of, um, moments where there is this exquisite beauty in the darkness. That's not to say that we, we crave that, but when we're able to see that, I think it's, can be very soothing. Definitely. I mean, I, I just think, I think it's part of, you know, not to kind of repeat myself, but maybe accepting and metabolizing the whole, the totality of life, as opposed to trying to divide it up into discrete chunks of like what we're okay with and what we're not okay with. Like we, we are mortal, you know, that's a thing like, you know, age, age happens, sickness happens. Like all of these things are part of our experience. We can't, if we live in a um, state of resistance to them, what are we going to do when the person that we love becomes sick? Are we going to be like wringing our hands and falling to pieces? Or are we going to be there with them at that moment of their, you know, journey, you know, being present, doing everything that we can to help, but also being like emotionally aware and patient 
with the fact that this thing is going to take the course that it, it does, that we can do what we can do, and then the rest is not in our hands, you know? And so I just think that, like, that it's that it's about that real happiness is a lot more complex because it's about acceptance rather than dividing things up into neat little boxes where when something happens, you're just blindsided and there's nothing you know, whatsoever. And which is not to say that death doesn't blindside us. Of course it does. Yes. Of course. But then what are you going to do? Are you going to like, be like, okay, I must bury myself in work and totally ignore the fact that this thing has happened because, you know, that is the only way I can deal with it. Or are you going to like reach out to the other people in your life? Are you going to write about it? Are you going to, you know, think about what that person meant to you? write a song, whatever it might be that you do, you know, plant a tree, but how are you going to actually like allow yourself to process that? And I do think there's happiness in that because in the process of saying goodbye to somebody, we are also revisiting who they are to us. And we are also refusing in a sense to like, I think we get, you know, the idea of mourning, it sometimes thinks we think that mourning means letting go of someone, um, like letting them just getting, getting, let it, letting them go away. Um, and and I, I sort of think it's the opposite. I think that the process of mourning is like fully allowing who they are, who they were to us, you know, to flow through us. And in a way to kind of embed itself in us. Yeah, that was the word I was thinking of embedding or embodying them within us in some way. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's what mourning really is. You know, I certainly wasn't taught how to do that well. So I think, you know, a lot of us are on our own trying to figure that out. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we will continue the conversation with Jason Gotts. We're talking about his book, Humanity is Trying, Experiments in Living with Grief, Finding Connection, and Resisting Easy Answers. To learn more, please visit jasongotts.com, on Twitter at jgotts, and on Instagram at clever underscore creature underscore podcast. Here comes that pause. We'll be right back. And that actually is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. We're back. I'm speaking with Jason Gotts. We're talking about human healing, restorative practices for real people and a better world. Let's get back to it. So Jason, I would love for you to share a little bit about your experience, because I know you've bared witness to this in these two losses that you share in the sure. book, Humanity is Trying. Yeah. So what I want to say is, 
at the risk of sounding ungrateful to a country that has given me so much of who I am. America is not great at dealing with death in the absence of, I guess, religious, certain religious traditions. My dad's family are Jewish, but by the time I came along, all the Jews were atheists. My, <laughs> in my family, my, 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 my mom's family are Roman Catholic Italian, but we just, there were no, we were not a particularly religious family and there were no ready-made templates. You know, I like the Jewish tradition of sitting Shiva for a week. I think that's, I think it means a lot to take a week out of your life to sit with other people who knew the deceased and think and talk about them and eat good food and, you know, just be together. Um, I think that 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 is a wonderful um, ritual. But, you know, when I the first big loss in the book is the loss of my friend John. Um, we were best friends in high school. Then I went to NYU and he went off to UC Berkeley. And in his sophomore year, he was shot. Uh, he was mugged and then shot by like a 15-year-old kid oh, um, uh, coming out of a dance rehearsal, John, John was. You know, it was just a totally random tragedy. And I was in college at the time and I, you know, came home for, we had a big ceremony and memorial for him in the Washington National Cathedral, which sits uh, between National Cathedral School, where my sister went, and its brother school, St. Albans, where John and I went to high school. And indeed, that ceremony was an out, you know, that memorial was an outpouring of feelings and thoughts about John, and, you know, people sang songs, and, you know, it was wonderful. But the, to me, the most salient feature of that time, you know, of, of my interactions with other people afterward, was the a sense of hurry a sense of people saying to me you know get on you've got to get on with your life you've got to move forward you've got to you know giving well-meant advice go bury yourself in your schoolwork compartmentalize this i heard that word a lot compartmentalize and i remember you know i was 20 at the time i guess and I just remember, you know, it made me very angry. Of course, people, you know, I, I was 20, so, and I was also mourning my friends, so I wasn't in a position to think more broadly and generously about people's intentions. But I thought, you know, this is nonsense. Like, you know, this is not what needs to happen. What needs to happen is that, like, in an ideal world, what needs to happen is I go, like, I leave school for a semester and I go travel around India or something, just writing in my journal and, yeah. you know, thinking about John, you know, I, there needs to be some dramatic ceremonial marker and some extended period of time where I can deal with this. And that just wasn't in the cards, you know, it just wasn't uh, acceptable within the, you know, my family or the, the culture that I was embedded in at the time. And so, you know, over time, I found ways, and I think this is what we all have to do. You know, I think, you know, we were talking a little bit during the break about how mourning is a very individual process. And I imagine that it is, I know that it is different 
from you know person to person like each person that you have to mourn each relationship that you may have to mourn you will mourn differently and so it's a it becomes a matter you know if you especially if you don't have these external rituals it becomes a matter of having to listen very closely to yourself and having to give yourself permission to fully honor your feelings and that relationship in whatever way you need to which 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 is an intuitive process you know so with john over time you know i was a songwriter at the time i wrote i wrote him a song i wore a coat that was his throughout the following winter you know throughout that winter after he died you know literally in a sense wrapping myself uh, in mm. a physical connection to him and you know for my sister who passed in 2015 and also died young she was in her 30s at the time i you know in some ways the the deepest part of the process of mourning her came in writing this book well and also john who i had lost you know 30 years earlier <laughs> the mourning doesn't doesn't end in some there's no clear door that gets shut where you say okay you know i'm done like as long as there was a relationship that person is is part of you and their loss is a part of you and so writing the book also uh, was a continuation of my mourning of, of john so I, I just think that i think that like since i don't since it seems unlikely to me that we're going to get together you know at scale and come up with some universal acceptable ritual for mourning especially within a culture that values that is really like tends toward workaholic tends toward like never stopping never resting i think that it's incumbent on us to advocate fiercely to give ourselves permission to go through that that process whatever way we need to especially in the face of resistance from those around us who might be uncomfortable because death is something that people don't like to be reminded of. Yeah. As you're speaking, I'm thinking about, you know, the opportunity that comes with this heartbreak, you know, the, the, uh, the silver lining or the lessons right. or the, um, the, the, the evolution of the self, right. That there were broken open, you know, through that heartbreak, there right. is that, that space where you're suddenly, facing those demons, you know, the, or the dragons that we're trying to slay within ourselves. And we realize that there's this opportunity for personal transformation and this transcendence. And I think that's what you describe my take in the book, Humanity is Trying. That's right. I mean, I think if we're open to sort of fully facing and accepting our experience, suffering is definitely a gateway to growth, you know, just, that's just how, I just think that's how it works. Like, I don't even think we necessarily need to think of it as an opportunity so much as just the natural process of what happens when we process our lives. You know, I, I dealt with a sort of moment of guilt about this in the book where I found myself kind of reflecting on like lessons learned through grief you know, and then kind of talking back to myself and saying, you know, like, Mary, my sister, like, didn't die for your personal growth, you know, John didn't die for your personal 
growth. Like I, I wanted to be careful to not to kind of separate it out in that way because, but what you're saying is a hundred percent true. I just think that like, I just think it's sort of a mysterious natural process that, that happens when we don't resist reality, you know? Yeah. Yeah, of course. I'm going back to what you're saying about these people that we love about Mary and John not dying for your growth. I think that what comes to my mind is it's the, that, that the, the collateral damage or sort of the splatter effect back on the people who care, right? It's, right. it's how we process those events. It's what we do with it. And if we don't do something with it, if we don't, you know, allow ourselves the dignity of, of our process, it gets stored, you know, it gets stored in the body, stored in the mind. And then it, it, it creeps out in these other forms of maybe bad behavior, difficult relationships, substance That's abuse, right. physical ailments, like it goes somewhere. We have to do That's something right. with it. <laughs> That's right. And I think, and I guess, you know, maybe what's, you know, a way of thinking about it that I can accept better is that like, that, then the idea that like, you know, oh, I've lost someone and, and now I'm, now I've grown as a result. I mean, that growth isn't only personal. It is, it is in your ability to be present and be, you know, of value in the world. It is, it, you know, having yeah. gone through suffering and come out the other side makes you a more generous person, makes you a more available person, you know, it helps you help others. And, and so I think, you know, that is definitely the silver lining that the survivors, you know, if they're not simply surviving by the, by gritting their teeth, they gain wisdom through that process, you know. And I would also add that the contrast heightens awareness. In other words, for those of us who have had these kinds of experiences and can really connect with the process, I think it then amplifies the ability, experience, or expression of happiness, right? It, it, we can't be sure. happy all the time, but when we have that contrasting experience, I think we're able to savor or hold on to those exquisite fleeting moments when things really are good. Absolutely. And that also relates to what I was saying before about sort of not siloing off different aspects of our experience. Yeah. I mean, even just the awareness of mortality, as opposed to being this like terrible thing over there in the corner that you don't want to look at that. I'm not the first one to point out that, you know, without mortality, time doesn't mean much, you know, like the, the, the time that we have with our family, the time that we have in this present moment, anything that is available to us to enjoy or find joy in is enhanced by that awareness, by that awareness that it's, that it is precious and that it is temporary and that it isn't, you know, to be taken for granted. And ours to do something with as well. Yes. Jason, yes, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Right. Like, you know, it's like you hold, you hold your world in your hands, even though it's messy and gritty and dirty and painful and joyful mm -hmm. and all of it, but it's ours. 
Yes, and I think there is a kind of a joyful urgency in in that in the, you know in that awareness of its of its preciousness and the fact that it's ours to connect with, make use of, live fully. My guest today has been Jason Gotts, the author of Humanity is Trying Experiments in Living with Grief, Finding Connection and Resisting Easy Answers. Jason, I love this conversation. <laughs> I, I So did I. It's been wonderful talking to you, Lisa. Me too. To learn more, please visit jasongotts.com on Twitter at jgotts and on Instagram at clever underscore creature underscore podcast. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests, Dr. Elena Mostakova and Jason Gotts, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to stay joyful. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUURadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.